Hello and welcome to the perfect puzzle. Uh, we're looking in this in this study at the new covenant. We've looked at the Abrahamic covenant. We've looked at the Mosaic covenant. Now we're going to look at the new covenant. Uh, so uh, turn to Jeremiah chapter 31, starting at verse 31, and I'm going to read. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, I will, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, If heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. Now let's begin with a prayer. Father, in the name of your Holy Son, Jesus, we come again and ask your help as we come to our Father, who has a throne of grace to provide grace and mercy in time of need. Lord, I need you and the people listening to this need you. We need what is in this portion of Scripture because we need to all be taught of God from the least to the greatest. We thank you for the many truths that we've been learning in, in these covenant lessons. There's been an awful lot to learn, to ingest, and yet we want people changed, transformed, not just through a Bible study, but through a divine encounter. We want to meet the living God, and we want you to change our lives. For the glory of the Lord Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I've been saying in our last two lessons, and hopefully it's going to sink in and it hasn't done so already, we have eight major covenants in the Bible. The first three covenants are called general covenants. They are the Edenic covenant, the Adamic covenant, and the Noic covenant. Now, a general covenant means they're made to the whole of mankind. They're universal in nature, and they're not made to one specific nation, but to the population of the whole world. Now, the other five are called theocratic covenants. Now, theocratic means rule of God. The theocratic covenants are pertaining to the rule of God on earth and how he projects his influence upon his creation. The theocratic covenants include the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Palestinian, or also known as the land covenant, and the Davidic covenant. And now we're going to look at the last one, the New Covenant. Now it's highly significant 
that all of these theocratic covenants were made with the nation of Israel, who are God's covenant people. I've also said as we've gone through these studies that there are two types of covenants involved in these eight covenants. There are conditional covenants and unconditional covenants. And very briefly, conditional covenants are bilateral. That means there's a responsibility on both parties of the covenant to do something. God proposes to man in a bilateral conditional covenant. God says, if you will, then I will. See, blessings in a conditional covenant are conditioned upon obedience. Before God fulfills his conditions, man must first fulfill his conditions. Two out of the eight major covenants of the Bible are conditional. And those are the Edenic covenant, which Adam broke, and the Mosaic covenant, which has also been broken and has now passed away with the coming of Messiah and his death and resurrection. We saw that in our last study. You'll note that only one of the five covenants made with Israel was un was conditional, and that was the Mosaic. So those are the conditional covenants, and the other type is the unconditional. That is a unilateral covenant. What I mean by that is it's a sovereign act of God. God alone is responsible to fulfill the obligations in this type of covenant. You see that because in the passages that deal with unconditional covenants, God continually says, I will and I will. And the blessing is secured not by obedience by anyone, but by God's grace, a free act of God. Now, six of the eight covenants are unconditional. The Adamic, the Noic, the Abrahamic, the Land Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and the New Covenant. Now, let me say again that there's one vital rule of Bible interpretation that we have to kind of remember, and that is to figure out or ascertain who's being addressed in any given portion of Scripture. And it's by using that rule of interpretation that we know that the first, that the first five unconditional covenants were made between God and the nation of Israel. And the new covenant is no exception. Verse 31 makes that very clear. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. In the new covenant, see, both houses of Israel are included. There's Israel, which is the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern. Thus, this covenant includes the entire Jewish people, all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the reason why that's an important biblical principle, and I emphasize who this covenant is made with, is because there are a lot of people, a lot of scholars who have wrongly interpreted this covenant and the other covenants as having been made with the church or having been made with Gentiles. But we see clearly in the context that it's a covenant God made with his covenant people, Israel. There are other Old Testament portions related to the new covenant that are also bear, bear that out, and those are in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, but I'm not going to look at them in this study. But if you want a New Testament example of how this new covenant has been made specifically with Israel, you turn over to Romans chapter 11. In Romans 11, verse 26, 
we read that there is a day coming when, as Paul says, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's the same covenant as the new covenant when God will take away their sins. Then all Israel will be saved. So, if this new covenant was made specifically with Israel and not with the church, how do we then understand scriptures that clearly connect the new covenant with the church? Well, <clears throat> they're all obvious, but probably the most obvious is the Last Supper where the Lord Jesus, on the night on which he was betrayed, he met together with his 12 disciples. He lifted the cup and he said, This is the New Testament, the new covenant in my blood. Paul reiterates that account in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to a Gentile church. How the Lord said that we were to drink this cup, for it is the new covenant in his blood. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we read that Paul and the apostles consider themselves to be ministers of that new covenant. The book of Hebrews reiterates this new covenant teaching. It speaks specifically of a new covenant and quotes from Jeremiah 31, which was our first reading. Hebrews tells us how this covenant is one of better promises, that we have a new high priest, and there has been a once and for all eternal sacrifice, and a new law, and I could just go on and on. A covenant is made specifically with the house of Israel and Judah, but yet there's many portions of scripture that connect the new covenant with the church. So how can that be reconciled? Well, the most common solution is what is called replacement theology. I've talked about that a little on it in previous studies. Replacement theology is the idea of transference of the covenant promises that were made with Israel to the church. So, but in order to take that interpretation of Scripture, you first have to have an allegorical approach to God's Word, and that means that you spiritualize everything that appears to be literal. To do that, you have to set aside sound Bible interpretation and ignore the details of a covenant. You must also ignore any of the other covenants such as the land promises that are given to the nation of Israel. Now other people who don't believe in replacement teaching say well there are actually two covenants included in, in this new covenant. One is to Israel and one is to the church. But the problem there is it's not supported by any scripture. Then there are others who say, well, there's not two covenants, there's only one, but there's two aspects to that one covenant. One aspect is for Israel, one aspect is for the church. Well, the fact of the matter is, if you read this, this portion that has to do with the new covenant and other passages, the covenant itself does not differentiate aspects at all. There's not one to Israel or, and the other one to the church. You know, believe it or not, though, the solution is really a lot more straightforward. It's found back in Romans chapter 11. It's important that you see it. <clears throat> Go to verse 17 of Romans chapter 11. If some of the branches were broken off, 
Now this is an analogy Paul is using that we've already looked at, and I'll explain it in just a moment. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Now the natural, natural olive tree in Paul's analogy is the nation of Israel. It represents the spiritual blessings of the Jewish covenants that Gentiles are foreigners to and strangers of. The branches partaking of the blessing are natural branches. That is Jewish believers. And the wild olive branches are Gentile people who have believed in Messiah. Unbelieving Jews have been broken off and thrown away. And the Gentile believers in Messiah, who are the wild olive branches that have been grafted in, but they have been grafted in to be, as verse 17 says, partakers of the blessings, the root and fatness of the olive tree. In other words, they are partaking of the benefits of the covenants of the nation of Israel. Verse 24 bears that out. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, and once again, that cultivated olive tree is Israel and her promises, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? God's covenant-elect people, Israel, who were to be a missionary nation and a vehicle to bring Messiah to bless all nations, are in unbelief. God has judged them with a measure of blindness, though there's still a remnant being saved to this very day. Now, that's been, this has been for the purpose of bringing the gospel to the nations. Because the Jews have not believed, the nations are now hearing the gospel from Gentiles. Now, all this was foreseen by God, but there's a day coming when all Israel will be saved and the natural branches will be put back into this olive tree. But note how Paul puts it. They will be grafted into their own olive tree. It belongs to them. These are their covenants, even the new covenant. So how do you understand how the church relates to the new covenant? You know, the relationship of the church to the new covenant is basically the same as the relationship of the church to the Abrahamic covenant and to the land covenant. We haven't looked at that, but that's the promise of the land of Israel and the Davidic covenant, which is the promise of the throne in Jerusalem. The church has no claim upon the physical blessings of any of the covenants that God made with Israel. Those physical blessings were in the Abrahamic covenant, they were in the land covenant, and they were in the Davidic covenant. However, the spiritual aspect of those covenants is amplified in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, and the spiritual aspect of all these covenants include the Gentiles. Now that may seem a little complicated, but it's really quite simple. In the Abrahamic covenant and in all the theocratic covenants other than the Mosaic covenant, we as Gentiles, by grace, 
are partakers of the spiritual blessings of all of them, but not the physical blessings. See, the physical blessings belong only to Israel, but the spiritual belong to both Israel and the world. This is how God planned to bless the world through the nation of Israel. We also see from Jeremiah 31 that this new covenant is meant to replace the Mosaic covenant, also known as the Old Covenant in verse 32. Because Jeremiah 31 and verse 32 goes on to say, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. You see, the Mosaic covenant, as far as God is concerned, is broken. Actually, before the covenant reached the base of Mount Sinai, it was broken. Therefore, the new covenant is distinct from the Mosaic old, the old covenant. It's not an elaboration of the, of the Mosaic covenant. Now, we have to be careful here because confusion can come through the terminology that, that, that we're using. Now, I mean by that, we understand the Old Testament as being Genesis to Malachi. And another term for Old Testament is Old Covenant. Therefore, some equate the Old Testament of our Bible with the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. They read Jeremiah 31 in, in the New Testament. And because the Old Covenant is replaced by the New Covenant, some mistakenly assume that all the covenants in the Old Testament have been replaced by the New Covenant, and that's not the case at all. In fact, the Old Covenant does not include all the covenants of the Old Testament. And we saw last time what the Old Covenant is. You know, the Old Covenant's a Mosaic Covenant, and it does not include the Abrahamic Covenant or any of the unconditional covenants with Israel. The Mosaic Covenant was conditionally established 430 years after God made his covenant with Abraham. Go to Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He said not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one. And to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say that this covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of no effect. You know, there you see the differentiation between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. And in fact, the Mosaic covenant is an interim covenant until Messiah comes, Verse 19 bears that out. Paul says, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. But now that Messiah has come, the Mosaic covenant has been replaced with the new covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, abides today and you're in the blessing of it not physically but spiritually 
you know, go back to Genesis chapter 12, where you have the Abrahamic covenant, and out of that comes the land of the Israel covenant, which is in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Then comes the Davidic covenant, which has to do with the throne of David, and next comes the new covenant. The Mosaic Covenant does not come out of the Abrahamic Covenant. It's separate. It's interim. And the Abrahamic Covenant has ramifications for the land. Right into the Millennial Kingdom for the Davidic throne and into the Millennial Kingdom and for the New Covenant into this New Testament era, the Church spiritually and Israel in the Kingdom. Therefore, the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of promise, and the new covenant is the covenant fulfillment of everything that the Abrahamic covenant promised. Now, if I were to ask you a question, who is the major character in the Old Testament, how would you answer that? You know, a lot of people would, would say Moses, but, you know, it's not Moses. Abraham is the central character of the Old Testament. This is vital to know because the Abrahamic covenant is the basis for all the theocratic covenants of God. The Abrahamic covenant is the one purpose of God for humans into which all of God's programs, plans, and works fit. It's a comprehensive, packaged, detailed outlook of what God has done in history, what he will continue to do until the consummation of all things at the end of time. So what was promised to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, and it's fulfilled now in the new covenant, and what will be fulfilled to Israel, and what is being fulfilled to us spiritually. I hope you followed that, but let me try and really kind of nail it down for you. What does the new covenant mean spiritually to us and physically to Israel? You know, there are four provisions in the new Testament, in, in the new covenant that, that uh, are in it. Regeneration, national restoration, complete justification, and the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we'll take first of all regeneration. Spiritual and national regeneration are spoken of in Jeremiah 31. God will put his law in their inward parts, that's verse 33, and he's going to write it on their hearts. The key aspect of the new covenant is the blessing of salvation, which includes Israel, Israel's national regeneration. Paul wrote about it in Romans 11, remember? So all Israel will be saved. But it does not appear initially that this regeneration of Israel is going to be universal among the Jews. Certainly it's going to be the case for Jews who are alive when Messiah returns, who Jesus said are going to cry, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. They're going to embrace him as Messiah. Now, you can read about that in uh, Zechariah's prophecy in chapters 12 and 13. There's a lot of details there. And it would appear from then on in verse 34, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me, for the, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. You know, it's you know, from then on, there's no need for one Jew to say to another, know the Lord, because they're all going to know him. That's a promise to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And when it's fulfilled, all Israel shall be saved 
and there will be regeneration of the people of Israel when Jesus returns. But incorporated in this is not just a spiritual regeneration, but a national restoration. We read here that Jehovah, Yahweh, will be their God, and the nation will be his people, in verse 33. So, so this new covenant, just like the Abrahamic covenant, involves the people who have des descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It involves the land that God promised them, and it involves the throne that was promised to David. Physical blessings are in the new covenant. Material blessings will be showered upon Israel at the new covenant. We see this in the same chapter, verse 27 of Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. Ezekiel also has a great deal to say about this new covenant. Go over to Ezekiel chapter 34. You're going to read more about this material blessing in verse, starting verse 5. I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land. They will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. The Mosaic law provided for material blessings when the Jews obeyed God, but the Jews largely forfeited those blessings because of their disobedience. However, the new covenant is an unconditional covenant. God is saying, I will. It's not conditioned upon the faithfulness of, of, of his people. It's conditioned upon the faithfulness of God. Not only will there be material blessings, like the temple's going to be rebuilt. I know that causes problems for a lot of people. But the problems are with how you understand Scripture when you read passages like Ezekiel 37. If you'll turn over there, and you need, please keep your finger in Ezekiel, because we're going to be looking at a couple of portions here. The sanctuary is to be rebuilt. Look at verse 26. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Now, you either spiritualize all those details, and for that matter, if you want to look at it later, from chapter 40 on, beginning of chapter 40, there are some very, very graphic measurements and details of what this temple structure is going to be like in the millennial reign of Christ. Now, you either just spiritualize all of that, or easier just to go ahead and conclude that the sanctuary is going to be 
rebuilt. That's what Ezekiel said, what God said through through Ezekiel. The Mosaic Covenant provided for the tabernacle, provided for the, that was the tent in in the wilderness. The Davidic Covenant provided for Solomon's temple. And now the New Covenant is providing for the Millennial Temple, or you could call it the Messianic messianic temple and it hasn't been built yet this will be a memorial to israel of all god's faithfulness to them throughout their history of unbelief so there's regeneration there's national restoration but third there is complete justification keep your finger in ezekiel look at verse 34 in Jeremiah 31. At the end of verse 34, God says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. That's the very thing that the Mosaic Covenant could not do. It only covered over sin, but it could not remove sin. But the New Covenant removes sin, and God pronounces that he remembers sin no more. You know, rather than merely forgetting, he chooses not to recall them ever again. And then fourth, not only is there regeneration, national restoration, and complete justification, there's the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I really want to linger here. It says in verse 32 that God will write his laws on their hearts. Then it says in verse 34, they will all be taught individually by God from the least to the greatest. So what we have here is the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you go to Ezekiel 36, this time, you're going to see this borne out in verse 27. God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now listen very carefully. This is the reason for Israel's failure to keep the Mosaic Covenant. The reason why they could not keep the law of Moses, there's nothing wrong with the law. It's holy and it's pure. It's God's righteous standard revealed to mankind. The problem is, our flesh, our flesh is weak. We have an inherent bent towards sin. And in fact, what the Mosaic Law does is it multiplies sin for us. In other words, it creates sin. The people lack the power to comply with the Mosaic Law. And the purpose now of the New Covenant is to give the people the power to live righteously. That is mighty because that is what freedom in Christ is. Freedom is not license, but it is the liberty to do that which is right, a liberty and freedom that we did not have by birth. Freedom in Christ is the freedom to do righteousness in the power of God. Uh, But, you know, you have to hold on a minute because... Many New Testament Christians make a mistake, and they think their righteous living is compliance with the Mosaic Law. But we, as we saw last time, though, that can't be because the Mosaic Law is finished. But then others are going to say, well, 
this new law of Messiah that you mentioned in the last study, well, you know, that's Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, where Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then go to Romans chapter 8, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ, Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That really comprises the law of Messiah are the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ from his mouth or his commandments via his apostles. Now we saw in our last study that the moral law existed before the Mosaic law. In fact, before Eden even existed. The Mosaic law embodied the moral law. But now this moral law is embodied in the law of Messiah in totality and in perfection. Now, let's just home in on this for, for a moment because there are some slight differences between the Mosaic law and the moral law that was enshrined in the Mosaic law. And the Mosaic law that is in, and the law that is enshrined perfectly in the law of Messiah. Some commands are repeated in the law of Messiah from the Mosaic law. Some commands are omitted. And some commands are intensified from the Mosaic law to the Messiah's law. I'll illustrate that. Some commands are, are repeated. For instance, nine out of the ten commandments are repeated in the New Testament. The one left out is an omission in the law of Messiah, that is the Sabbath. Also, the dietary laws and many rites and rituals of the Old Testament law are not repeated in the law of Messiah. But some laws are intensified. Some Christians get it into their head that the law of Messiah is a bit of an easy ride in comparison to the Mosaic law, but that's not true at all. Some laws are intensified. For instance, the Mosaic law said, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. But it, and it means that man is the standard. If you love yourself, and all of us men know what that means, love your neighbor as yourself. See, then man becomes the standard. But in the New Covenant, Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 12, Love one another, even as I have loved you. So now, it's not man as a standard. It's the suffering Savior who laid down his life for mankind. So some commands are repeated from the Mosaic Law to the Messianic Law. Some are omitted, like Sabbath and dietary codes and so on. But some are intensified. Now, listen carefully. From our last study, I hope no one went away with the assumption, right, the law of Moses doesn't apply to us anymore. We have this law of Messiah that comprises the law of Christ, all the commandments of Jesus and the apostles. And you're going away thinking, well, I don't follow legalistically this code of ethics from the Old Testament. But I follow now a new list of rules from the New Testament. Well, if you're thinking that, you could not be further from the truth. You may say now that I'm contradicting myself, but I assure you I'm not. Listen carefully. 
the law of Messiah, just as the law of Moses was, is impossible to live to according to the flesh. You cannot follow down a list and tick it off and say, I've done this, I've done that, oh, I haven't done that, I haven't done that. No, I've done that. The Holy Spirit is central and vital to the new covenant. What man could not do in the old covenant, he can now do in the Messiah covenant, the new covenant, but he can only do it by the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit. You know, so many people think living a Christian life is just about obeying the law of Messiah. Well, I got a wake-up call for you. The law of Messiah is harder than the law of Moses. See, it's no longer an eye for an eye. It's turned the other cheek. And are you telling me that's easier? I don't think it is. You may say to me, well, Jesus said it's easier. His commands are not grievous, burdensome. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, burdened with the yoke of bondage that the religious leaders had put on them. And he said, I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, you're missing the punchline. There's only one man who can live the law of Messiah, and that is Jesus Christ. His life is the only life that pleases God. He is the only one who can fulfill this law. You know, we can only fulfill it by the power of the Spirit. Can I say to you that some of the people who are experts in rightly dividing the word of truth when it comes to covenants are pygmies when it comes to understanding the ministry and the upper, utter necessity and vitality of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the great how it is to be done. You may remember last time I shared with you a 2002 Barna research poll of Christians in the United States. You know, it showed that most of the, most who were polled would sum up the Christian life as, and I'm quoting, trying to do what God commands. See, that's the level of doing rather than the level of being. Their emphasis is on rules, but the New Covenant emphasis is upon relationship. Do you understand that? I gave you the better definition of what true Christianity is, and that is, it's the New Covenant. It's a personal, faith-based relationship with God as your Abba, your Father, through abiding in Jesus Christ the Son, and walking in a loving obedience to his word through the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, you can try and do all the rest, and you are going to fail without the person and power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus said, it is necessary that I go. Now, what else could be so important that Jesus go? So there's a new motivation in the new covenant. The old, the old covenant motivation was due to be blessed. The new covenant motivation is to do because you are blessed, and there's a world of difference. Let me illustrate it like this. Now, the famous Boston preacher, Dr. A.J. Gordon, visited the World's Fair in Chicago. He looked off in the distance, and he saw a man robed in bright, gaudy, oriental clothes. 
and he appeared to be furiously turning the crank of a pump and making a mighty flow of water. Gordon was so impressed with this man's energy and his smooth motions and his obvious physical conditioning that he went a little bit closer. And the closer he got, the man he saw the man was pumping his water tremendously. But as he grew close, Gordon was surprised to discover the man was actually made out of wood. And instead of turning the crank and making the water flow, the flow of water was actually turning the crank and thereby making the man go. Do you understand? Most Christians are in their own energy cranking the pump to do, 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 even if the do is pray, read, don't look at that, don't go here, don't do that. It's not that those things are right or wrong, but they don't figure that in a relationship, they don't figure that in a relationship with God. See, what God wants to do is he wants to put his own life in you so that you will live out these New Testament, New Covenant promises by the power of the Spirit. He wants to fill living waters through you that will crank the pump. The New Covenant was promised as a far prospect in Jeremiah and is promised as a near prospect in Luke chapter 22. Would you please turn there with, with me, please? Luke chapter 22. I promised, as I said, as a far prospect in Jeremiah, now promised as a near prospect in Luke chapter 22. And we're at the Last Supper in verse 15, and this is really instructive. Then he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for you. <coughs> Excuse me. Promised as a near prospect on the night on which he was betrayed, the Lord represents the new covenant in earthly tokens. It's about to be cut. You remember that's how this agreement, how the agreement's covenants are, are made. It's spoken of as being cut, and it's about to be cut at Calvary. Now, I want you to imagine this in your mind's eye, because we've lost a lot of the imagery. This was the Passover meal. The Lamb of God is in the center of this meal, and he's pouring wine into the cup. In the temple sacrificial system, the blood of the animal would be poured out as a drink offering, and he is pouring out this wine. It is also believed that the cup after supper that is spoken of here in Luke was the third cup out of four cups that are used in the Passover meal. In Jesus' day, 
Now they may have filled up the same cup four times. See, the first cup is the cup of sanctification. The second is the cup of remembrance. And the third cup is the cup of salvation. And that is the cup after supper that he took and consecrated as the cup, we would say, perhaps, of communion or the Lord's Supper or, or Eucharist. It is with that cup in hand that he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you, the cup of salvation. The symbolism here is incredible. Here is the new covenant promised as a near prospect. The benefactor is Jesus in the midst, and he is to be cut by a voluntary sacrifice. This is a unilateral covenant, wholly established by the means of his obedience. Paul says, his obedience even unto death, the death of the cross. Remember, it had nothing to do with the faithfulness of the disciples. They all ran away. The beneficiaries are sitting before him. His own disciples representing the house of Israel and Judah. And yet we know this mystery that represented here in spirit are wild olive branches just like you and me of Gentiles who will partake of these blessings. Promised in far prospect, in Jeremiah, it's in near prospect in Luke 22, and then it's enacted. It's cut at Calvary where Isaiah says he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. In the Abrahamic covenant, you remember Abraham was told to take the animals and cut them in two, and it was God who walked between them. The Mosaic covenant was cut in stone. And the shedding of blood was sprinkled on the people. But this new, new covenant will be engraved on the hearts of believing people because it is a covenant cut with the shedding of the blood of the Son of God. I have graven you upon the palms of my hands, Jehovah says. Hebrews reads, If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. See, the blood of the Messiah is the basis of salvation in the new covenant, and that blood was shed at the cross. The blood of Messiah has ratified, signed, and sealed the new covenant. If you want to read about that, read Hebrews chapters 8 to 10. Now, not only was it enacted at Calvary, it was fulfilled in the book of the Acts and Romans. In the Acts, the obedience to the Great Commission. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. It's fulfilled. 
The gospel is first proclaimed to the Jews in Jerusalem. Then it goes to the Samaritans, who were Jewish-Gentile hybrids. And it goes to them through Philip. Then it moves out to the Gentiles via Peter, to Cornelius and his household. Then it goes to Antioch and to the regions beyond. Then we come to the book of Romans and the new covenant gospel is proclaimed to the Jew first and then the Greek. That's the power of God unto salvation to them. That's Romans chapter 1 verse 16. Then Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. It goes to the Jew first. Then it goes to the Greek. Then to the, or the Gentile. And then it's going to go back to the Jew again. We see this on every one of Paul's missionary journeys. He has a pattern to follow. First, he seeks out the synagogue and he preaches to the Jews. Even on his last journey, as he was going to his death in Rome, he starts at Jerusalem where he witnesses in Acts chapter 21 in the temple. And he declares to the Jews in Acts chapter 22, I am a Jew. Then three days following his arrival at Rome for execution, it says in Acts 28, he called together those who were the leading men of the Jews and declared, I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. He felt so indebted to the Jews, we read it in Romans 9, that he could almost wish he was accursed so that his kinsmen in Judaism could be born again, those through whom the covenants have come and the Messiah has come. Now let me ask you a question. In the light of all this ministry, you feel indebted to the Jew for where you are? Well, if you don't, you don't understand this salvation. There is a Gentile obligation upon you for your indebtedness to the Jew. I don't have time to go into it, but in Romans 15, we read that the Gentile believers of Macedonia, who had become partakers of the Jewish spiritual blessings, sent money to the poor church in Jerusalem. Paul basically says in Romans chapter 15, Seeing that you have been partakers of their spiritual blessings, should they not be partakers of your material blessings? There was an obligation to Israel. And can I say that obligation is just not material, it's spiritual? You know, pray for the Jews. Witness to them. I know you may not know many or you may not know any, but if you can, witness to the Jews and support the witness to the Jews. I'm going to conclude, and I'm going to conclude this whole series of three studies by drawing your attention to these last three verses from Jeremiah 31. We're going to look at 35, verses 35 to 37, because they're fitting for the close of this whole series. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If these ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off 
all the seed of Israel for all they have done, says the Lord. Now, all of that really incorporates one Hebrew word. It's called Hesed, H -E, spelled H-E-S-E-D. And it's the, the steadfast love of the Lord. It's used 250 times in the Old Testament. And it speaks of how God is always faithful to an unfaithful people. He will be faithful to his physical and spiritual promises to Israel. And he will be faithful to his spiritual promises to believing Gentiles. Because otherwise the heavens would cave in around your head. Now let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your truth. We ask that by the Spirit you write it on every heart, Lord. And when I, I ask you, don't just fill their heads. Deliver us from full heads and empty hearts. Give us all the blessings of the new, new covenant that cost the blood of Jesus. Lord, the church needs all the blessings of the new covenant. We spare a moment for Israel, and we pray that the remnant of Jews will increase. And we pray for that day, Maranatha, when they will all be saved when Jesus comes. Amen. Let me add this. Remember Abraham's covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, it was performed, it, it was dark, and God walked between the sacrifice? Do you know it was dark for three hours when Jesus died? Do you remember that? When the agreement between God the Father and God the Son, the covenant was made. I'll leave you with that. Amen. Thank you for listening.